Welcome to episode 455 with my guest, Dr. Romani Durvasala. Uh, we're going to talk about narcissism and psychopaths and all kinds of delicious things. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, it is not a substitute for mental uh, health uh, <laughs> therapy. I'm trying to shorten the the disclaimer I do to say that I'm not a therapist and that I'm basically a jackass that used to be a professional stand-up comedian and TV host. So maybe I just say that. Maybe that's what I do. Hey, uh, I made another cutting board for uh, a raffle for people that are Patreon donors. Uh, you can also uh, submit uh, a guess or guesses if you're a PayPal monthly donor, but you would have to email me to do that. Whereas Patreon, uh, I'll send the details of it via message to people on Patreon. And so the way it works is for every $5 a month that you donate currently, you get a guess. Uh, pick a number between 1 and 500. So if you're a $5 a month uh, donor, you would get one guess of uh, a number between 1 and 500. Uh, if you're a 15 month, uh, $15 a month donor, you would get three guesses. <laughs> and you also qualify to win Gracie. She hasn't made a peep in the last three hours. Of course. Of course I turn the mic on and all hell breaks loose. Let's Gracie, who she's being reasoned with. I should probably go close the uh, the shutters. <laughs> I should mention I'm on a yacht. Uh, so yeah, the cutting board, I'm really proud of it. It looks great. It's got three different woods in it. It's got maple. It's got paduk, which is a, a West African hardwood, kind of ruby colored. Uh, and then it's got walnut as well and so i'll put a picture of that on the patreon page and submit me your guesses and um the deadline for submitting guesses is uh wednesday night of next week so i will announce who the winner is and um good luck good luck i want to read a couple surveys before we get to the interview with uh dr devasala this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman, a trans woman, who calls herself she was a witch. And her description of depression is so fucking great. She writes, oh, hey, death, I didn't hear you come in. <laughs> oh, God damn it, that is brilliant. A snapshot of her life. I'm so goddamn lonely that I, a trans woman, lie to my good friends about having a girlfriend because I am afraid no one will ever love me for who I am. Oh, man. I really, really hope for you that you can find a way to, to break out of that because you deserve to be loved. We all deserve to experience love. You know, I was thinking today when I was meditating that it's that there are people who tend to be more towards the driven, can't stand still, always doing shit. You know, maybe maybe more financially successful. Those are the people that I compare and despair, compare myself to and despair. 
because I always struggle to get through my to-do list. And then there are people uh, like me who I think are more kind of stillness-based. I'm not going to call it laziness because there's active thinking going on when I'm when I'm still, sometimes I'm just being, I'm just chilling. Maybe I'm sitting in the hammock in the, in the backyard or uh, I'm projecting into the future when I'm broke and alone and in a ditch uh, filled with warts and regret. <laughs> but it seems to be, my point is, so much of life seems to be a balance uh, between financial success and stillness. So few people I know who are really financially successful are comfortable with stillness. And I was just thinking how uh, that just seems to be a daily struggle. We all seem to be on one, one side of it or the other trying to move towards the middle. Maybe that's where it's at. The middle. You can be financially successful and still find stillness. And if you're one of those people that can do it, go fuck yourself. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Just John. And he writes, about two years ago, I was at a family lunch thrown by my brother and his wife. There were 12 of us there. We ate, did coffee, then gathered in the rec room to watch a tennis match. When the match was done, the local news came on. There was nine or ten of us still sitting there when a story about an unsolved murder came up. The victim was a prostitute. She was also someone I had paid to have sex with a few times. I'd previously known about her being found dead in a wooded area a number of months prior. It nauseated me at the time. But then, to be there with my family, all looking at the TV as the girl's face and details about her, quote, career were broadcast, just added a whole new level of holy shit. I remember my niece saying something like, ooh, so gross, followed by my brother saying, what kind of sicko would even enjoy sex with a hooker? So for some time now, I've been carrying this around with me. Last time I checked, they were still looking for the killer. I keep waiting for the cops to track me down for information because surely they must have text messages from me to her on record. But I honestly have nothing I can tell police other than I found her on Backpage and had sex with her three different times before I discontinued contact with her. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. And people that, that judge or look down at sex workers, man, get to know one personally. You know, in Los Angeles, it's, it's, you're going to run into people. If you get to be good enough friends with somebody, you know, they will confide in you. In some of my support groups, there's quite a few people who are former sex workers. Um, and when you get to know them as people, um, it, it, um, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, and in my past, I've paid for sex before. And if you ask anybody who is a sex worker, they will tell you that the majority of people that come to them do not come there because they're horny. They come there because they're lonely. And they'll tell you that a lot of times, and we've interviewed a couple on this podcast, they will tell you that sometimes clients come to them and they just want to be held. They just want to talk. They just want a space that's non-judgmental. 
And I'm not saying that there aren't many instances of horrific exploitation and uh, slavery going on out there, but it's it's just uh, it's so complicated. It makes me sad when I hear hear people talk about them like they're not human beings, and and when they're they experience crimes, the police often don't treat them like human beings. They just treat them as disposable. You know, and it's not like my whole life I was compassionate and enlightened on the humanity of people on the fringes of society, but I don't know. I just, I, I had to speak my piece there and that, uh, thank you for filling out that survey. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is betterhelp.com. I talk about it all the time because they're a weekly sponsor and I'm really grateful for them and I'm grateful for the therapist that they paired me up with. Uh, her name's Donna and she really helped me the last couple of weeks uh, process sadness around the finality of my divorce. You know, even though we split three years ago and the divorce was final, uh, you know, almost two years ago, uh, it, it's I had been keeping stuff in my ex's garage, and I didn't realize that it was a way of me avoiding feeling the finality of that marriage having failed. And uh, yesterday, I got uh, the the last of, well, not yesterday, I, a couple of days ago, I got the last of the stuff out of there. And then um, I called my ex and, and, and said, um, I, I just need to take a little break before we can be friends again, because I need a delineation between who we were and you know, if we're going to be friends, who who we're going to be. Because our dogs enjoy playing with each other and and we do still care about each other. Um but it's it's I think there was a lot of sadness that I that I had to process him and probably still processing. Anyway, that just all goes to point out what a great therapist she is. So if you're interested in checking out betterhelp.com, you've never tried online counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor if they have one that they feel is a good fit for you. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, and then this is the last survey before we get to the interview with Dr. DeRosala. Uh, This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Angry Sugar, and she writes, Today I had a moment that confirmed my borderline personality disorder. I was diagnosed with BPD 10 years ago, but disregarded it because I didn't understand it. I was also diagnosed with bipolar and ADHD, so I chalked any unfortunate behavior up to one or both of those disorders. So today I was doing laundry and picked up a t-shirt, t-shirt we all have, old with a logo you don't really notice anymore, and stains on it or holes in it, a comfortable shirt that's perfect to sleep in. This particular shirt was a Hurley shirt, and it hit me. I have this Hurley shirt from the time I dated a skater. I also have cowboy boots from the time I dated a country boy, and Harley gear from when I dated a biker. I have a Chicago Bulls jersey, shirts with marijuana leaves on them, and a Mustang Sally shirt from the time I dated a gearhead. 
I know unclear identity is a symptom of BPD, but I didn't really understand what that meant until now. In my case, it meant grabbing onto an identity presented to me in the form of a man I barely knew and immediately worshipped. I believed this person held the key to where I belonged. I tried out different lifestyles. I was even a swinger for a minute, and I hated it. Luckily, I have no commemorative apparel for that period of time. I still don't know who I am. I just feel empty. I tried to fill the void with shitty underground bands, MMA, becoming one with nature, etc., etc., and none of it fit. I always felt like an outsider looking in, a shitty poem in one hand and a clove cigarette in the other, just hoping no one would expose me for the fraud I was. I just want people to like me. I want to fit somewhere. I need to find my authentic self, whoever she is. I think the first step is cleaning out my closet. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're just all in this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks are so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Romani Durvasala. Uh, you're a PhD a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. You were trained at UCLA. You yeah. practice here in Los Angeles. And you have a book out about identifying narcissism in partners. Yes. Yeah. I have two books out. One, one is very specific to the intimate relationship. That book is called, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. And in about five days, my new book comes out called, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. That's a longer lens view, view at the whole thing and what's happening in the world at large and how it, it gets into all of our relationships. While the intimate relationship is where people often feel the narcissism most potently, mm -hmm. it can be a parent, it can be a sibling, it can be a boss, a coworker, a friend, a sibling, you know, an in-law. There's, I mean, it can pervade any relationship we're in mm -hmm. and do all kinds of damage. And those different kinds of relationships require different techniques to handle them. The most recent book, does that deal with the kind of social media narcissism yeah. mm -hmm. and people curating their lives Absolutely. and everything as a performance? Absolutely. And all of that, you know, it's like, it's, it, you know, the, the armchair easy way to think about this is like, oh yeah, she edits her pictures all the time. She must be a narcissist. It's not quite that simple. And in fact, the research is really interesting in that in some ways, the way narcissism and social media work is like grant, you're sort of traditional grandiose narcissist, the ones who are look at me, I'm so great, I'm the king of the world, everyone should like me. They tend to be the ones who post more, post more selfies, edit more selfies, but then more of the sort of resentful, sullen, vulnerable, covert narcissists 
they're not as active on social media. So it's like even the many faces of narcissism, the way they show up on mm-hmm. social media is different. And, you know, it's easy to call social media out as the big boogeyman of the time. It's definitely made things a lot worse. But just because you're on social media doesn't mean you're narcissistic. You know, I always say like, listen, if you're an empathic person who's not entitled, who's able to have deep, healthy relationships, and you're able to see social media as one tool or one almost like photo album to share photos in your life, but you don't live or die by it. That's very different than the person who really does curate their life and gets frustrated when their sort of false life mm-hmm. doesn't line up with the reality of their inner experience. So what what would then the difference be between someone who is pathologically, clinically narcissistic mm-hmm. and someone who has narcissistic qualities? You've just explained it a little bit, yeah. mm-hmm. but... Um, When we use the word sort of, when we think about it as pathological narcissism, or maybe even full-on narcissistic personality disorder, we really look at sort of the amount of damage these people are doing and how much damage it's bringing into their lives. So, you know, your pathological narcissist is someone who's really sort of burning people down day after day after day, lots of divorces, lots of lying, lots of cheating, um, lots of deceit and manipulation and in all of their relationships, not just partners, but with their kids, with their coworkers, with everybody. They're kind of a jerk to everyone. They're the person who drives really fast on the freeways, cutting everyone off. Like mm-hmm. it kind of generalizes. Do they, do they, uh, are they seen frequently in the upper echelons of business? Heck yeah. In fact, there's some research that's actually shown that, you know, probably over half of CEOs are narcissistic. And there's some research that suggests somewhere between five and 20% of CEOs are psychopaths. So these fields in high social class, people of high wealth, people of higher social class are actually not very good at ascertaining um, their own limitations. They tend to have an inflated sense of themselves from the jump, maybe because they've always been told that, maybe because their parents are also quite narcissistic. There's probably a whole host of factors there, but it definitely clusters at the upper echelon. Celebrity, politics, law, business, academia, top of the game, you really top load the narcissist at the top, which is why, and they set the tone for the rest of the world. He who sets the reality sort of sets the tone. And because the narcissist set the reality, it's really why we're kind of slipping into this really dark era of normalized narcissism. Yeah. The worship of celebrity and wealth uh, has, I mean, we elevate workaholics. Uh, Yes, we uh, not only do we elevate workaholics, we elevate billionaires, we elevate people on the basis of Instagram followings. But what we don't do is elevate people who do really good, simple work in their communities, people who are working with children in high risk communities that have special needs, we don't elevate them. And good Lord, are they heroes, you know, they're often working underpaid over time, trying to make ends meet and doing the most important work of our society. But we would rather elevate somebody who makes a billion dollars because they're lucky that that doesn't add up and that definitely fosters this epidemic i would just like and i say this many times on the podcast i would love when they interview a billionaire as part of their success ask them names of their children's best friends their their favorite (laughs) movies you know let's include Mm -hmm. that in this success Mm -hmm. package yes and and it and that's not how we measure because there's nothing wrong with money 
No, there's nothing wrong. Listen, and I trust me, I would love a heck of a lot more of it. But the fact of the matter is when it's a blind pursuit of it, or more importantly, when that becomes the sole measure of how we judge people, it fosters insecurity, right? Because if I don't have enough, if I have trouble making my bills, I'm going to think, well, there's something wrong with me. And when we feel insecure, that's really when we see the mental health problems come into play, where, where we feel insecure, we make bad judgments, second guess ourselves, or in the case of the narcissist, who are the most insecure people of all, harm other people. And I, I think a lot of people would be fooled by the narcissist thinking that person is overly confident. But All the time. Whenever I see an arrogant person, I think that person is is probably thinking about suicide. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. are just feel dead inside and they don't know how to hide their fear or ask for help. But people don't think that when they see a person who's really confident, when they see a person who's really arrogant, because so many of us are self-effacing, so many of us don't know what our real value is, we tend to put ourselves down. The narcissists, because they're so insecure, learn to build a suit of armor and walk around talking all this crazy arrogance and, and, um, and overconfidence. And I always say to someone, if someone is really, really dis proportionately bragging about themselves, take pause, because if you're genuinely good at something, you really don't talk about it. Exactly. Exactly. So it seems as if there there has been a shift toward societally in putting on the show rather than connecting to people. And I know on social media, a lot of people go to it for connection, mm-hmm. but it, it seems as if there has been kind of become this competition, especially among younger people, of this is my show, I'm curating my show, and I want to impress uh, people, get the followers or whatever. But talk, if you would, about the dead end of that in terms of emotional health and growing. Well, the research has been pretty darn clear. It took us a while to get their data, right? So the researchers have been collecting this data steadily for about 10 to 15 years. And you needed that much to really be able to talk about this in the long term. What do we see? We're seeing higher rates of depression and anxiety on the, it's, it's what we call dose response. The more you're on social media, the higher depression and anxiety we see. We see lower self-esteem. Why? Because there's lots of social comparison. Some people even argue that people who spend too much time on social media aren't getting enough sleep Mm -hmm. and they're more prone to cyberbullying. So there's a lot of other influences that happen. But what you've got to keep in mind here too is that we're talking about a drift away from the authentic self. I think what's so sad about the current point in history is that people's authentic selves don't feel like enough. They have to create these manufactured selves to be able to get all the admiration and validation that they crave. And remember that admiration and validation seeking are core inherent qualities of narcissism. In essence, we should be able to validate ourselves enough. Everybody loves a compliment. It's fine to want a compliment. It's a problem if you need one. And, and the way you go about getting, getting one them, is, right. is, is, as, as it's well. a false life. Uh, in the narcissist, classically, what has not been met in their childhood, if anything? You know, what, what probably in mo- has not been met is their emotional needs, right? So when a child is young, it looks to its outside world for mirroring. It wants to know that its emotional world, his or her emotional world is good. And how do they get that? If they have connected, healthy, empathic, compassionate, and most importantly, securely attached parents, their parents notice them and say, hey, what's that big smile about? What are you happy about? That child's like, 
yeah, I'm happy. And little by little, they internalize all that healthy emotional mirroring and they simply learn to trust their inner worlds. And if other people are smiling around them, great, but they trust that their inner voice is happy. Most kids don't get that. Most parents aren't up to the, aren't up to the real rigors of the day-to-day emotional mirroring that parenting requires. There's no license required for parenting. So anybody, no matter how dysfunctional they are, as long as they can have sex and reproduce, they can have a child. doesn't mean they're fit to do it. So a lot of kids don't get the mirroring, the attachment, the emotional needs met. Also, we have a lot of kids out there who are spoiled, who are overindulged. So they get anything they want, all the attention, all the experiences, all the praise. But when it comes time for that child having an emotional need, there's no one to be found. So the parents are great at buying iPads and Disneyland tickets and all of that. But when that kid really needs to cry it out to share an insecurity, the parents themselves aren't emotionally well-formed enough to offer that up. It is a lot more work to feed a child's emotional world than it is their superficial world. And because of that, those kids who grow up on to become narcissists as adults have very impoverished inner worlds, leaving them insecure. And that insecurity becomes downright toxic when they're adults. What are some common ways that that children who are spoiled materialistically, their their needs are not being met? And and how do you see it affecting them? How does it express in, in adulthood in them? So what you see is like when a child is getting their material needs met, almost without exception, the thing that they don't learn to do is regulate. They don't learn to regulate disappointment. And one of the most important things we can teach a child is how to regulate disappointment, failure, and not getting your way. That's why our kids knew, do need to fail. That's why our kids sometimes don't need, shouldn't get picked for the team and need to lose the game because it's in those moments they learn that it feels awful and they're going to be okay. So when you say, of course you can have the phone or the car or the this or the that, the child's like, okay, I never need to know disappointment. And parents often don't want to do the hard work of tolerating their child's disappointment. A lot of these parents are trying to overcorrect. They themselves were very disappointed as kids and like, darn it, my kids are not going to be disappointed. You ain't doing your kid any favors. Because let me tell you, I, I see over and over again in my clinical work, people who at the age of 25 are having their very first disappointment ever. That ain't pretty. You should learn disappointment around the age of three or four. The, the person who has always had their financial needs met uh, or is even spoiled do you see when parents divorce you know mm-hmm. the the father that comes on the weekend mm-hmm. being kind of the culprit in indulging them in whatever they want because they want to, he wants to be their best friend absolutely i mean listen parents sometimes the most well-intentioned parents may overindulge their kids, not because they're toxic or narcissistic or psychopathic or awful, but rather because they may feel guilty. There may have been a divorce and they feel like I only get to see you once a week. So gosh darn it, it's going to be the best once a week you could imagine. It's not even necessarily that that parent is being malevolent or awful, but they're really trying to make up for lost time. There are parents out there who work a lot and they're like, you know what? I work a lot. I make a lot of money. Why should my kid want for anything? I would say, listen, if you've got the means and you're able to really set your kid up well, okay, good for you. But that absolutely, absolutely has to be met 
in an equivalent way that you're meeting their emotional needs, that you're letting them talk, that you're being present with them, that you're, you're mirroring that emotional world of them, theirs. There is no electronic device in the world that can substitute for a parent being in the room with a child, looking them in the eyes, and just holding them or talking them through a difficult experience. And I think because so many adults are uncomfortable with their own inner worlds, they're not even able to be that for their own children. Yeah, they don't have the script. They, they never heard they it. They never got it. For they them. never got it. They, yeah. And then this is a generation. A lot of parents in this generation, and certainly parents of the generation before, were raised by very authoritarian parents, mm-hmm. where it was either like, mom and dad know best, you're just going to obey, and there's going to be no further discussion. And what that left was really kind of an emotionally impoverished generation going on to raise more and more kids. And then we saw some interesting cultural shifts in the 60s and the 70s and the me generation and sort of the baby boomers almost doing an overcorrection. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a pendulum kind of moving back and forth and a lot of overcorrecting. But what we leave a child with, a child who cannot regulate becomes a child at risk. Because when a child cannot regulate themselves, they turn into an adult that can't regulate themselves and that makes them vulnerable, vulnerable to things like substance abuse, Mm -hmm. self-harm, eating disorders, acting out behaviors. So things that reflect that big dysregulation because they never learned how to be self-possessed in the first place. So those are all vulnerability factors. So if people think, ah, come on, he's a little spoiled. He'll figure out the real world soon enough. It goes beyond that. It goes deeper to a place of I can regulate myself enough that I don't need to turn to something outside of myself. So are are these people that then will become narcissists that you write about in your book? I mean, people who are people who do not know how to self-soothe, people who do not have a vocabulary based around empathy, people who are really self-important and entitled, people who need all their validation to come from the outside, that's narcissism. Mm -hmm. And that definitely can come from that developmental track. Now, are there kids out there who are spoiled rotten and don't get their emotional needs met and then turn out to be perfectly warm, compassionate adults? Absolutely. I mean, it's not, this isn't an absolute formula. It's a probabilistic formula. It's like betting on a horse in a race. You know, it's likely going to go this way. Are there exceptions all the time? We're human beings. I mean, we're nothing but random noise, but there are patterns. So let's, let's start with the, the beginning of, of narcissism. Uh, it takes hold, I, I guess, from what you said, with needs not being met mm-hmm. in, in childhood. And attachment needs, yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me just a case, either a real-life case example or a hybrid of the common situations, mm-hmm. you theme, uh, themes that you see, starting with a kid in, in toddlerhood. Okay, so we even go early, infancy. Child is born. Parent is distracted for any number of reasons. And I say parents, probably parents. There's no primary consistent primary caregiver. Why are those parents distracted? Maybe they're distracted because of mental health issues. Maybe they're distracted because they're struggling with addiction. Maybe they're distracted because they're narcissistic themselves and are bored by taking care of a child. Maybe they're distracted because they have money problems. You know, but they're just not present with the child. And there's no one adult 
no caregiver, grandma, mom, dad, no one who's consistently present for that child. So what's so no ch- stability. So there's no there's no consistency. There consistency. may be stability. There may be a roof over the head and the food keeps coming. And this is a big issue because a lot of people as adults will say, I kind of feel bad throwing my parents under the bus because there was always meals on the table and a roof over our head. I'm like, yeah, that could also be called an orphanage. You know, so don't give me meals on the table and a roof over the head. It's a baseline. Yeah, it's a baseline right like, like a an institution could offer. Right. Well, the additional piece we know is human beings need consistent, safe requirements where they start to learn that over time their needs can be met in a consistent manner. Is every parent going to get it right every time? No. I think if we get it right about 60 to 70% of the time by our kids, we're doing okay. And I mean, but in always emotionally, we look at them, we pay attention to them, we hold them, we respond to them. The child then begins to realize like, hey, in this, this, there's this cool person and I, I communicate and they kind of come and take care of me. And over time, that child feels safer and safer and safer. And they take more and more chances. And that adult keeps teaching them things like empathy and mirrors back emotion. And it gets a more consistent sense of self and how to regulate. It learns that it can cry and a parent may hold it, won't scream at it and say, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. And they hold the child. They don't try to fix the problem. And then the child learns that sometimes things don't go right but I can cry it out or I can let it go and everything's going to be okay. That is hourly work by the parent, the caregivers over time, even Mm -hmm. the teachers in that child's environment. And many people do get that. That's why by and large, many people out there are actually pretty well put together. But the issue also is, is that as we've become a more technology oriented society, everybody is communicating in this sort of very quicksilver, not particularly thoughtful way. We consider texting to be a conversation. Texting is very quick information transfer. It's not a conversation. It's almost like Splenda and sugar. It's not sugar. It may right. taste sweet, but it's not actually serving that It's function. essentially a modern telegram. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And if telegram was never considered anything but like, I made it safely, stop. Right. That's it done. It wasn't like, are you okay? Is everything okay? But that's sometimes what we're doing by text because we've become so uncomfortable. And you often have a lot of young people are saying, why are you calling me? Is it an emergency? I'm like, no, I just wanted to hear your voice. I wanted to hear a nuanced yeah, conversation, yes. <laughs> so, a little connectiveness. Yes. Yes. Uh, so then what's the the next stage of the, the narcissist? You got to remember then as a child goes into become school age and then, you know, starts going through puberty and all of that, the parents aren't the only game in town. Now you've got community, you've got society, and you've got peers. Our kids at younger and younger ages are interacting with a lot of electronic devices that are designed to push all kinds of advertisements at them. And these poor little kids aren't, their brains aren't developed in a way to be able to critically think about this. So they start to learn, like, if I have that toy, then I'm good. If I have that, then I'm great. If I watch this, then I'm wonderful. And so they're starting to kind of fall into this commodified universe a lot earlier than previous generations did. So it means parents now not only have to be parents, they have to be watchdogs and they have to be teachers. The schools aren't teaching kids about digital literacy. They really aren't in an active way. It's not like there's a a period of each class day where 
teachers are sitting with kids putting up advertisements and say, look what they're trying to get you to do. They're trying to get you to buy this thing so you'll get their sugary food. Nobody's talking about it, feeling like that's the job of the parents. The parents aren't doing it either. The kids are also starting to learn that winning is best. You know, that that oh, everyone's on these electronic devices. So whoever has what toy or anything, mm -hmm. they're considered better. So they're now being shaped by society, by the community, by their teachers. Kids, some kids get awards, some kids don't. And that can also create this sort of this sort of disparity and that's and then nor is it right that every kid gets an award you know right. then every it, the kids don't learn to regulate their disappointment so it gets to be a confusing space now though as we start going into adolescence some of the other issues around validation seeking entitlement listen teenagers are entitled it's, it's part of the developmental stage it's almost like a snake skin you kind of hope they shed it by the time they get into their 20s but for a lot of teenagers, these patterns start to stick. Social media and peers become a far more profound influence than teachers and parents. And if those are the influences are getting, we're all in trouble because they're really vapid, empty spaces. But you know what? A lot of young people argue to me. They're like, you know what? Be careful because there's a lot of actually decent spaces out there that are communicating some interesting messages. The problem is it's like a really thin thick forest where how do you find the good stuff? How do you rule out the bad stuff? And who is really digitally literate in that world? More vulnerable people, so people who may struggle more with issues of self-esteem, kids who have been exposed to trauma, kids who have issues around decision-making and choices, those kids may be more vulnerable to the effects of things like social media and a variety of internet media. And then they enter into adulthood and there's nothing you can do. Then this pattern's stuck. You start throwing hormones into the mix with a kid that's a narcissist yes, yeah. you throw social media mm -hmm. into the mix and parents who don't have the script mm -hmm. to connect to their mm -hmm. child yep. now we're entering into the relationship with yes. somebody mm -hmm. else right so let's talk about that then how do you know if you're in a relationship with a narcissist? As an adult? What do you do? Yes. Okay. Or, or is a, a teenager? As I, a teenager, it's tougher because yeah. I don't even like using the adjective narcissistic with teenagers. Their, their, could their just be immaturity. Yeah, their personalities are still developing. We know yeah. that. And if we look at various psychological theories of development, we know that they're still, they're kind of, it's almost like I view a teenager as somebody who's wearing a really big sweater with sleeves that are too long. Like let them, give them a few years to grow into it gotcha. and then their arms will stick out the other end. So, yeah, the, teenagers are self-focused and selfish and entitled, and they're trying to individuate. They're trying to find their way. It's a really hard phase of life, actually. So I'm not willing to throw them under the bus, even though I've got two teenagers, and let me tell you, it's, it was, I was staying up all night with an infant was a heck of a lot easier. But when we get into adulthood, the big question is, how do I know I'm in a relationship with a narcissist? You know, most people know, but they don't have a word for it and they don't know how to get out. You know it because you are, you f you're not meeting with consistent empathy. You're dealing with somebody who will slowly but surely over time start to insult you. You're, you know it's happening because you're always making excuses for them. They're stressed. They had a tough childhood. They had a tough day. They have a tough job. They're a self-made person. The more excuses you make for a person, the more likely you're in a relationship with a narcissist. And, and I would imagine you're just regurgitating back what they've said when they've refused to own their own Absolutely. shit. Absolutely. Because they, they're, nar narcissists are masterful at generating excuses and rationalizations for their behavior. And because they are actually so clever and charming, they, and charming 
their explanations actually kind of ring true. And nobody wants to be the mean person to say like, well, I don't care about your trauma. Don't treat me like that. Most people play into sort of the fairy tale of like, oh, they've suffered. I'm going to rescue them through my love. No, you're not. And and I think here's a way to uh, gauge whether or not that person uh, has a valid point or not is say, let's switch places would I say what they said mm-hmm. to me? Yes. If I were in their shoes. That's and right. the answer is usually no. Heck no. No, no I no. mean, and it's also things like, are you ever confused when you're with them? Do you, I mean, I always say to somebody, you know, the ringer, you know, you're in a relationship with a narcissist the day you feel like you need to start recording your conversations because you're so confused. Like, did I really say that? Did that really happen? And and people say, I have to record. And when you feel like you have to record conversations, you know you're in a relationship with a narcissist because they're really good at denial, at twisting things around, Gas at gaslighting, yeah. and all of that. And all of that leaves people incredibly confused. And so people will do things like, I'm going to write them a long email, and maybe they'll sit down and actually read it instead of not interrupting me. If you got to write an email to stay in a relationship, it's time to go. Is there a period of grooming with uh, narcissists you know it it can be called grooming it can also be called love bombing so what narcissists are really good at doing is honing in on a victim and then really winning them over in some ways for a narcissist they love games right they love winning so it's they find their person and they focus on them and they court them it's a project and so they court them and it's all quite grandiose and this this is the most amazing love story there's ever been and I've never the big ringers I've never had a connection like this with anyone before that's a very big narcissistic sentence like you'll that's where it's all so grandiose that people start losing the reality of it things happen too quickly people move in too fast they get engaged too fast they get married too fast they meet family too fast what's happening is you're getting sucked into someone's vortex so now you're invested in a way that makes it harder for you to leave that's very very intentional on their part i I would imagine there is also a lavishing of words Mm -hmm. with with deeds not necessarily matching the the, the words or the deeds are very superficial hey I booked plane tickets for us to fly to San Francisco for dinner. But then you'll realize like, but every time you're locally together, they never call back when they say they will, or they never see, you know, they never show up on time or they never hear you sharing a a story about something that happened at work. So when it comes to the day to day stuff, they don't measure up. When it comes to the grand gestures, they're, they're there. You want to talk about a work problem, nowhere to be found, but then you show up to work and there's 10 dozen roses waiting there. So it's like their gestures have to be things that get recognized by other people versus something that's very personal and close and intimate. And it plays into the Instagram of our time. They, they create very Instagrammable courtships, yes. big photo moments and really fancy restaurants and really cool concerts and lots of cool gifts. I sometimes say the less Instagrammable the first two months of a relationship, the more likely the relationship is to succeed. I, I like that. It, it's, it's so... Uh... I don't know, alluring for so many people to create the show. Well, it is alluring because I think, again, we live in it. We live in an era of grand gestures, right? And Instagram has created the ultimate portal for that. People want me, who wants to say like, Hey, just met a new person in our first date as at Starbucks. Everyone's like, Oh, really? To which I'm like, good for you. That's yeah. about all a first date probably yeah. should be. And let second date, I'll give you pizza, you know, like chill a little bit. And well, what do you mean he didn't pay? And people feel pressure. Like there, it, it needs to be this grand story 
or somehow you're getting, I don't know, you're getting played or it's not very good. And so this allure of the grand gesture is very much, because it used to be we couldn't share these things. You'd just be going on good faith. People weren't carrying around photographs of their mm-hmm. first date. But yeah. now it's something we share with the world, which means that now relationships that are superficially more successful are the ones that people fight for, whereas relationships that are really connected in a meaningful mm-hmm. way, what what picture is there to take of that? I, that's so funny. My, my uh, girlfriend and I, uh, we hit little bumps in the road sometimes in our relationship, and we work through them pretty patiently, mm-hmm. and we communicate with each other, and we really try to listen empathically, and mm-hmm. it usually comes down to one of us was afraid. Mm-hmm. We were trying to mind read the other person mm-hmm. instead of ex- expressing, hey, right. I'm feeling insecure. I'm kind of afraid. Mm-hmm. Turns out we were both mind reading and there was just a lack of communication. Right. We make up and our relationship is stronger than ever. Right. How do you Instagram that? You don't Instagram that. Nobody, I mean, who's really And I'm not interested in Instagramming it. But, but young people are. And so it's sort of sad because what I'm seeing with more and more people, it's almost like they have to get horrifically burned by a narcissistic relationship to come back over to the nice side of the street and have the sort of ordinary relationships that are the ones that stand the test of time. And if you really want to think about what a mantra of narcissism is, it's basically that it's awful to be ordinary. The idea of being ordinary for them is horrific. They want the big grand gesture and everyone's sort of buying into that ideology, not realizing ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Yeah. Connection. Vulnerability. It's, it's the day to day. I mean, it's the day to day stuff that that ends up being a relationship. You know, sure, we all remember those big days of birthday party and a vacation, that kind of thing. But more often than not, of the 365 days of the year, probably at least 360 of them are spent on who empties the dishwasher and can you go to the grocery store and buy a gallon of milk. Yeah. I read a book about uh, psychopaths. A book called. Gracie's chewing on the cord, uh, a a book called The Psychopath Next Door, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're Mm -hmm. familiar Mm -hmm. with. And uh, the author was talking about um, how the how the uh, psychopath will draw people in Mm -hmm. and and how everything is a chess game to them because they can't feel empathy. That's right. So it's just they're looking for payoffs. Yes. Talk about that. So when we get to psychopathy, we're getting into a different space, okay? So here's how I'd argue. Is, is there overlap there between narcissism? There is tremendous overlap. Okay. These are two Venn diagrams that completely overlap except for one thing. While narcissists are in fact quite insecure, psychopaths are not. And n- narcissists can feel guilt and remorse and psychopaths don't, making the psychopaths a heck of a lot more dangerous. Right. So the psychopaths really are motivated by power, profit, pleasure. They never, ever account for the human cost of their pursuits. To them, human beings are resources and they're disposable. And do they say otherwise? Do they put on a show? Do they pretend to be empathetic? Are they kind of incapable of really doing that convincingly? They can sort of fake empathy, but it really does feel fake. I mean, there's almost something very contemptuous that comes out when they talk about closeness or intimacy, like, ha ha ha, you silly little peons who actually care about human relationships. You guys are suckers. And we actually kind of glorify that kind of a character, particularly male character in our films, like anybody who thinks that emotion and romance matters. And that's psychopathy. Like they have no place for it. They, a human relationship, an intimate human relationship for them is solely about pleasure or exploitation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a means to an end. 
and is attention part of a payoff for them? It's sort of, but not as much as Power. you would think. It's not like with the narcissist. Because they're so insecure, they need the validation and admiration. A psychopath doesn't. They genuinely view human beings as disposable. And so for them, they may get attention. They don't really care. It's really about power. Power, money. Power, sex. money, profit, pleasure. And that's why I say the three Ps. Yes. Power, pl- pro- power, profit, and pleasure. And with narcissists, it would uh, more be uh, attention, validation. It's attention and validation. Don't get me wrong. Narcissists love power, profit, and pleasure. Those things, they love them. But there's also this sort of deeper core need of, please like me, please admire me, please validate me. I'm a little bit insecure. Not that they're in touch with that, but a psychopath, is that that's definitely not even any of their concern. That idea that of needing something validated. If somebody validates them, they're like, yeah, whatever, as long as I'm making a buck on this, great. You want to validate me? Validate me. Make sure there's money in my account by the end of the day. So uh, I'm sure everybody listening to this at some point has thought about Trump. Um, (laughs) So he would probably be more of a narcissist than a psychopath. Absolutely. And I call Trump, Trump's a great example of a malignant narcissist. So he's very confrontational. He's very manipulative, but he's deeply, deeply insecure. He so desperately needs to be liked. The man got elected. And I think what the day after he was inaugurated, he was already doing campaign rallies because he needs the validation that comes from a bunch of people who are sort of blindly devoted and cheering for him in a hall. He doesn't like the headaches, all the sort of day-to-day headaches of, of, of trying to, you know, unite people. He really just is in this for the admiration, the validation, the power, the entitlement. Um, and, and he is malignant. Again, he's quite exploitative. He's quite manipulative, but he is insecure. Yeah, it, and when, th- that's why I say he's, he's definitely not a psychopath. There, he's a there, malignant narcissist. There was a moment where he went uh, to console the survivors of his shooting and was immediately bragging about how large yes. the crowd was that's the last exactly time right. he had been there. And in fact, if you look a few weeks ago when the journalist uh, Koki Roberts had died, the first thing he had said, I think he tweeted about is she wasn't that nice to me. Like, you know, he can't so it's even always regulate. all about always them. about him. And it's always like, it's like he can't even let go of that little disappointment he had. Apparently, she wasn't nice to him. And much like a five year old who's like sitting, you know, having a tantrum at his birthday party. He wasn't nice to me. He doesn't get ice cream. You know, it's the same thing for him it, it, to even say that, like even to even think that is enough of a problem, but to not even have enough executive function to stop from saying that. I find Myself having narcissistic traits, I love the irony of me bringing myself into the conversation to talk about me being a narcissist, but sometimes I will catch myself switching a subject to talk about myself, and I'll feel a little bit of shame, and I'm aware of it. Mm. For those of us, and I do think I I definitely have a streak of narcissism. Me, Anybody that does stand-up comedy is <laughs> uh, definitely so. has narcissistic qualities. Mm. Um, what are some things to... to to share with people who have a tendency to be narcissistic, but not malignant narcissists, to be aware of, to ways that that we can grow and become better people. You know, narcissism is a tricky word because I think that the idea that I like to talk about myself at times, to me, doesn't qualify someone as a narcissist by any stretch of the imagination. I really go for those core pillars of lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, and arrogance. So if a person just likes to talk about themselves, maybe it's almost like some light attention seeking. And if anything, it might be the sort of thing that maybe you didn't get that growing up or it wasn't given appropriately growing up. Mm -hmm. So it could also be sometimes a discomfort with intimacy when somebody's sharing about themselves instead of really being present with the other person, the defensive 
posture then becomes, and now I'm going to share about myself instead of being comfortable with hearing their, you know, their story and letting them render themselves vulnerable, almost as though you don't feel like you have anything to offer to someone who's sharing their story. It's almost easier to just say, and you said that now I'm going to say this. It becomes more like parallel play. I don't know that I'd call that narcissism as much as I might call that a little bit of social anxiety. Oh, all right. Thank and you. I do I feel- think that stand-up comics are very socially anxious, which is why oh, they learn to definitely. tell jokes as kids yes. to help them ease through the social anxiety. And that's why a lot of stand-up comics can sometimes have tr- trouble with drugs and alcohol because they're still trying to soothe the social anxiety. Yeah. Uh, so more uh, about uh, was there more about the narcissism psychopathy kind of that you know I that think overlap? that a lot of people you know the word they get the terms confused right and people like to say oh he's a psychopath thank goodness it's not as many people as you would think they are chilling you know narcissists are a nuisance and they can be heartbreaking but psychopaths are chilling because even a narcissist is not really, really, really setting out to terribly harm someone. They often do harm people and lots of people. But when it comes down to brass tacks, they're actually not particularly comfortable with it. A psychopath is comfortable. That's the harming payoff people. for them. As it's, no, the harming isn't the payoff. Mm-hmm. The thing that the harming gets them. They don't, they're not sadists. They don't harm mm-hmm. for glee. But it might be somebody who will gladly take out a family to, to, to close a drug deal. Makes sense to exert right. their strength because in the end, it's so that they can secure their drug empire or their business empire, or whatever that is. That's chilling. And so a psychopath really will. They will they will harm people with absolutely no sense of remorse. And for us as human beings who are very much driven on right and wrong, we really, really can't get our head around that. And it can be quite scary because they'll often commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And even during the trial, we'll be like, all the evidence points to them. And they're really going to be like... Not quite getting why what they did was such a bad thing. How much do you believe nature versus nurture with is psych- involved in psychopathy? With, psycho- with psychopaths, I, th- I actually feel nature has probably a bit more to do with it than narcissism. I think narcissism is very much an attachment disorder, a developmental issue. Yeah. Psychopathy, you know, the research is still evolving. There's some really amazing research doing using neuroimaging, starting to look at some of the genetics of it. And definitely the tendency is to see this does run in families. But the tricky part is, Let's say somebody has a psychopathic dad, could be genetics, but it could also be that they grew up watching a lawless father. So it's, mm-hmm. it's sometimes hard to sort of sort that out. But we do know, for example, psychopaths will show less activation or almost no activation in the empathy centers of the brain. However, you can prime empathy in them, say, now, can you imagine what the person in that story would feel like? And when they really put their mind to it, that area will turn on, but it doesn't turn on spontaneously. Really? So you'd have to stimulate it. And so, and you can stimulate it, but it will never turn on normally. Just like with narcissists, the, the version of that is they just don't really care about other people. And so when you really push them, and when I work with narcissistic individuals in therapy, they finally come down to like, I get what I'm supposed to do in a healthy relationship, but I'll be honest with you, doc, I really, really don't care. I can't stand listening to other people. Like they have a lot of contempt for human relationships. They have a lot of contempt for true intimacy. So at some point they have to sort of know when they say surrender, like I'm not going to be able to pull this off. And there's a limitation. So for anyone out there who's in a narcissistic relationship, you got to understand your narcissistic partner is going to hit a wall and they're going to hit it quick. If that half empathy is enough for you, okay, then hang out. But if it's not, then it's going to be a long life. 
And I imagine the narcissist has some tricks up their sleeve when the other person tries to leave the relationship. What are what are some of the hallmarks of that? And you know, narcissists don't like being left because it's a real blow to their ego. They have no problem leaving, right? And they'll often leave and then start a new life without you in a matter of a week. Mm -hmm. It's often be and people say, "How can they have done that? Didn't I matter to them?" To which I say, "No, you didn't. Nobody does." And this next person is going to get discarded just like you were. Just give it time. If you decide to leave a narcissist, though, it's a very different game because for them, it's a major ego injury, right? How dare you? How Is this dare where you, you would see me? stalkers and, and yeah, the like? Yeah, many stalkers can, are, are narcissistic because they feel like they almost feel entitled to the person. They feel like they should have the right to control them. They have no empathy, so they don't care that they're menacing them and frightening them. But it's very much a sense of human ownership, which is really dehumanizing another person that you could nice. actually own them and that they owe you something. So narcissists can be prone to stalking. They can be prone to really being vindictive in divorces. They can really go really a ballistic on social media and really almost defame people in that space. They do this thing where they enlist what we call flying monkeys, meaning that they kind of recruit everybody who was close to you in the relationship and turn them against you and sort of ally with them by telling lies. So it can get really, really dark. And, you know, it's, it's always easier when the narcissist breaks up with you, but a lot, and a lot of people stay in these relationships out of fear. Many people though will say after they got out and they were able to endure the period of of stalking and verbal abuse and all the rest of it, the relief that would finally overtake them to not have to deal with this anymore was incredible. Are there any resources for somebody who is stuck uh, a shelter, you know, for, for somebody who is uh, maybe for women, for domestic violence? Uh, where This is where it gets tricky. I mean, so for many people who are experiencing narcissistic abuse, at the most extreme ends of it, it will look like domestic violence, obviously. And that's a much, much more serious issue. Life may be in danger, and they really, really should uh, call the domestic uh, domestic violence hotline. I am going to caution your listeners, though. If you are seeking out domestic violence resources and you are currently in a dangerous or violent relationship, do not look up those resources on a cell phone or on a computer or a tablet that is connected to an iCloud or other shared account because that means your partner can see you're looking at these resources. If you want to look up these resources, you must go to a place like a library, to a friend's house, make sure your email is not logged on when you do it mm -hmm. to make sure that anything you look up about domestic violence is something a partner can't find. Many, many, uh, a violent and abusive partners are very controlling and they monitor devices carefully. So I want to just make sure I put that yeah. disclaimer out there. But the fact of the matter is a lot of narcissistic abuse is not at that extreme end. So there is no so-called shelter to go to. It's more annoying, like you it's, were saying. It's, it's beyond annoying. It's actually quite psychologically abusive, but there is no place for people like that to go. Sometimes domestic violence and domestic abuse programs do offer resources. So don't shy away from seeking those out. But more and more people are finding resources online. There's a bunch of YouTube videos out there. I was telling you I have a YouTube channel that takes all of this on. There's lots of great books out there. I think that the, and there's lots of interesting Facebook groups out there that are closed groups to protect the people in the group so that somebody can't come in and harass right. the people in the group. 
So I think people who are going through this, you need to know you are so not alone. I was recently working with a group and they'd put out a call on a media site for people who are um, experiencing narcissistic abuse. And I got over a thousand responses in less than 24 hours. I mean, this is an epidemic. I'm not kidding. I get hundreds, hundreds of emails a week from all over the world. We can't keep up with the flow. So I'm booked out through next year. So that is how much of a demand there is for this. And there's not a lot of experienced clinicians who focus on this area. The mental health field has done no one any favors by saying, well, maybe you still need to communicate. Trust me. People who have gone through narcissistic abuse have tried to communicate this a hundred different ways. By the time they show up at my doorstep, they're shredded. And I will hear their story and tell them, this narcissist is not really going to change. What you see is what you get. Make your decisions accordingly. Love it by, you know, not that I love that, but love that how you're able to express, um, the facts. It's, it's, it's a, it's a scourge that has taken over the world very quickly. I've been doing this stuff on narcissism for over 10 years and for about the first six years of it, like any good academic, nobody cared. I was like, I was quite content to be sort of like a medieval monk, just sort of Mm -hmm. sitting in my lab and reading all the work. I was, I was always intrigued by it. Then 2016 and the election happened. This isn't about me. It doesn't matter what you feel about his politics. His behavior is narcissistic. Some people might say, great, I like a narcissistic president. Then good for you. I mean, aren't all slightly? I think so. I I agree with that 100%. But what has happened, though, it's brought this word into the public purview. And more and more people are wondering, why am I in such an invalidating relationship? Is this normal? No, no, and no. If you're in a relationship and someone's invalidating you, it's not healthy healthy. Mm -hmm. And while you may not be able to get out of that relationship, you better change your expectations real fast because none of your needs are going to get met in that relationship. Should we tell kids in kindergarten, not everyone can be reasoned with? Yep. I told my girls in second grade, I remember my daughter, there was a particularly nasty little child on the playground. And she's like, you know, the teachers are saying, I have to be this person's friend. I said, the hell you do. I said, you will never, ever be intentionally disrespectful to someone, but cut this kid a wide berth. You know, like when you see him or him or her coming, just kind of gently and respectfully walk away. I was a very big believer that I was never, ever, ever going to force my child into a friendship if they didn't feel safe in it. And that was very important to me as a mother that my children always felt safe and then they could set the boundaries that they want i have to be honest with you i wish we started teaching about this in middle school it's about that time mm-hmm. that people sort of start enacting their sort of romantic and relational fantasies and the hormones start start raging and so many girls out there believe like oh, he texts me all the time and he always wants to know where i am and he expects me to text him good night isn't that romantic i'm like no sweetie that's controlling he's controlling you and they think that's romantic and it's to tell them like you know what a secure guy doesn't need to know where you are all the time so that kid's payoff in that moment is the sense of power or the validation the or controlling what? kid yeah it's his insecurity and then always and feeling like wow like i'm actually exerting my control and it's working so that that's kid, the high yeah that kid may actually feel very powerless maybe he came from a, a home where he was abused or neglected and felt very powerless now in this intimate relationship space it's very likely that kid didn't see healthy, healthy models of it, feels that control 
is the only way someone's going to stay close to him because he's so insecure. Why would anyone want to be with him in the first place? But instead of understanding the insecure part of himself, he just tries to exert control. And a lot of young women think if a guy wants to be with her 24 seven, cause that's she may love. have had her own history of mm-hmm. trauma or difficult childhood, that that's normal. How do we tell girls like sleeping beauty and beauty and the beast are actually really dysfunctional stories. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Doc, thank you for coming My and sharing pleasure. all this. Um, give us the name of your newest yes. book. Actually, give the name of both of yes. your books, your web series, your Absolutely. website, all of that good stuff. So my most recent book, which you can order on Amazon as we speak, is called Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. My second book was called Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. Also available not only on Amazon, but all your book, all, all booksellers. And I have a podcast called Sexual Disorientation, where we talk about relationships and narcissism, sexuality, all of that. I have a YouTube channel. Just go to Dr. Romani and you will find pretty much everything and more than you want to know about narcissism and narcissistic relationships. We have over 60,000 subscribers and a really, really wonderful community of subscribers who share a lot of their stories. So it's not just my videos, Mm -hmm. but it's the community it's created. Um, If you go to MedCircle, which is a digital mental health platform. I have videos there also on not only on narcissism, but other personality patterns like borderline personality disorder. And if you kind of just Google me, you'll find I have all kinds of content on this. So there's a, I have a lot of information out there. And for people who may not be able to come see me or talk to me, this often gives people enough of a foundation to sort of figure out what might be the next best step for them. Love it. Thank oh, you. and my website. Oh, yes. This is the clearinghouse for all of it. It's drromany.com. It's D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I.com. And you can find me on all social media, which is a great way to link to my videos and my seminars and all that. And on all social media, I'm at Dr. Romany, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed talking to her. Uh Got to get her back on the podcast. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is Calm. It's a relaxation and sleep app. Uh, we all know the importance of a good night's sleep uh, for our brain and our bodies. And Calm is the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. And with Calm, you can discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and your body need. There's soundscapes and over a hundred sleep stories narrated by awesome voices like Jerome Flynn from the Game of Thrones and the great Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. And right now you guys get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash mental. So I've got quite a few surveys lined up for us to uh, to go through. I don't know if I'll be able to, to get through them all. Uh, a lot of times I bite off more than I can chew, but we've got some really, really interesting ones. This first one is a um, struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Anxious Ed or Anxious E.D., and his issues are depression, anxiety, and erectile dysfunction. 
And about his depression, he writes, the only connection I feel sometimes is with TV shows. Oh, buddy, do a lot of us relate to that. Here's something I've never heard. I've, I've heard tons of people say, oh, I binged watch this and that. I've never heard somebody say, I binged on human connection over the weekend. Um, about his erectile dysfunction, he says, I get depressed because I'm lonely, but the thought of being with someone and my junk not working freaks me out even more. I wanted to read uh, not only this survey, but a survey that I found very close uh, to this one. Just moments after I read yours, I read this one and I thought, oh, I should read that right after I read yours. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself, you mean there's intimacy outside of sex? Oh, and she writes, two weeks ago, I had a really great time with my boyfriend. He lives eight hours away from me now, but we are managing long distance, even though it's been rocky. After I went home, I thought I was going to be super horny because I hadn't gotten off when we had had sex, which is actually pretty rare. But I wasn't horny for two straight weeks. I was sitting, waiting around every corner. I have the sex drive of a 14-year-old boy most of the time. And I realized if I'm not horny, but I'm craving to touch myself, what do I really want out of this? And it was a beautiful moment where I realized I just needed to feel held and loved and in a space where I can be accepted. The thing is, I couldn't imagine that space as being with my boyfriend. I finally mustered up the courage to tell him this. It isn't because I don't think he could be that safe space, but I think I wasn't letting him be by holding back how I felt from him in anticipation of his reactions. When I brought it up, we talked for hours, and sometimes I felt like he understood, but a lot of times I think he didn't. I walked away knowing I did my best and I made my voice known, which felt better, but maybe like I wasted some time for, quote, the cause. Three days after my boyfriend had been really nasty, just kind of rude to me, and eventually I said, hey, you're acting really weird today. How are you feeling? What's going on in your head? And finally, my stubborn boyfriend, who's 10 years older than me and never vulnerable with me, called and said, I just kind of want to be held today. And gosh, nothing has ever been more comforting to hear and to be reminded we have the same needs and I'm not wasting my time or efforts in trying to explain them. This was the first time I ever realized there can be intimacy outside of sex. And it was pleasantly surprising to see that it's not just me, but everyone needs that. Love it. Love it. If you've never tried that, if you've never tried, if, if, if you find yourself shutting down when sex is initiated or anticipating somebody initiating sex, I suggest talking with your partner and saying, let's not have sex, but let's just be together and just touch each other and just make eye contact and talk and that's a really great foundation to build and sometimes you know it might lead to sex but I can tell you for me sometimes I put pressure on myself and I will shut down because I will be like I don't know if I'm the mood and I don't want to disappoint her and so we've had conversations where we share what we're feeling and I think I prefer non-sexual, maybe because it's new for me, but non-sexual intimacy as much, if not more, than sexual intimacy because it feels 
fucking amazing. It feels amazing. And I think earlier in my life, it would have made my skin crawl because I wasn't ready for it. You know, I don't think I was a safe enough space for somebody. And I don't think I knew how to open myself up enough and to let my guard down enough to not only know I needed that, but to want it and to be able to find the words to ask for it. But I'm really glad you guys filled out those surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Franklin. She writes, my mom is a narcissist and gives the worst gifts imaginable. One year when I was in graduate school, I was struggling with an eating disorder, uh, anorexia by overexercising, and happened to mention it to her. She got me one child's plate for Christmas and had a face that you could, quote, dress up with food. She said it was to help me learn to clean my plate. This year, she asked if I wanted gardening clogs, which I didn't need or want. I told her no and gave her a list of other things I would be delighted to receive. Not only did she get me the clogs, but they were yellow and had cartoons chickens on them. She wrote in I told you so note, which she attached to special wrapping paper. She demanded I open the gift last as if it was special and thoughtful. Here's what you do. You keep those yellow cartoon chicken gardening clogs. And then when your mom passes, you have an open casket funeral. Not not only open casket, but you put her on top of the casket and you put those clogs on her. And you tell everybody there is nothing in the world that she was more proud of than those clogs and that that's how she wanted to be remembered. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself sucks to be. About her depression, she writes, cement shoes and I keep jumping off the pier about her anxiety, an itch beneath my skin running through my blood that will never be scratched, about her compulsive eating, feeding the circus elephant whose ankles are chained to its past, about her uh, chronic health issue. Chronic back pain is like having a huge penis thrusted into your ass and then it gets stuck and you can't get it out every day. You know, there's a couple people that heard that and are like, oh, I wonder how I can hurt my back. About her, that's right, Paul. <laughs> Belittle her chronic back pain with a dick joke. <laughs> uh, about her codependency, don't leave me. If you do, I might find myself and I do not like me. Thank you for that. Those were really, really descriptive. I appreciate it. Uh this is a love filled out, and that's a new survey that we have. If you if you guys haven't filled out any of the surveys, please go to the website, metalpod.com, and fill out any of the surveys that, that we have, and, and there's a chance we'll read yours on the air. But this is one of the newer surveys, and people list their, their loves, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself She Who Must Not Be Named, and she writes, I love bubble wrap. It is so satisfying to feel the plastic bubbles fail and pop between my fingers, and to hear the simultaneous delicious snap. My husband hates the noise, so I love having a piece in my car to pop on my way home from work. I totally get that. When I get something packed with bubble wrap, I actually, I won't pop it right then. What I will do is I will save it. And then when I go do my volunteer work at a hospice, 
um, I'll pop it when things get really quiet. And a lot of times, if the patient is starting to go, uh, I'll pop it. Just like, you know, when you want to see if there's any toothpaste left, left in the tube. And a lot of times, there's a little toothpaste left. And the families may not fully understand, but someday they will. <laughs> I just made myself laugh. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lizard. About her bulimia, she writes, My first instinct when someone is ill and puking is to give them tips on how to do it more efficiently. About her compulsive eating, someone gesturing to a box, bag, or bowl and saying kindly, have as many as you want, is a nightmare scenario. About her compulsive skin picking, waiting to get a haircut until there is only one bloody wound on my scalp so at least I can pretend I just hit my head on a corner of a kitchen cabinet if the hairdresser asks. Snapshot from her life, my most vivid memory from college is, is the sensation of throwing up a family-sized bag of tortilla chips. Thank you for sharing that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a woman who calls herself uh, O'Malley Mayhem. And about her depression, she writes a constant haze. About her anxiety, like a really heavy person is constantly sitting on my chest trying to kill me. About her sex addiction, only being able to sleep with my wife when I am blackout drunk. About her PTSD, like I am forever stuck in my teenage body and mind. And then a snapshot from her life. Oh, this is heavy. Losing my virginity at 15 to a 21-year-old stranger in a hotel one week after my father violently hit my naked body with a plastic hanger while he had an erection. Wow, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. Thank you for sharing that, man. You guys go so deep with these. I'm, I'm so, as painful as it is to read a lot of these, I'm so grateful that you guys do it because the feedback I get from listeners is that these really, really help people realize that they're not alone. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Zach. He is, let's see how old he is, in his 20s, uh, identifies as straight, uh, says that he was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, rarely do I... Uh, agree with that after I read somebody's survey, but uh, he says that he's never been sexually abused. Uh, he writes that he's been emotionally abused. He writes, I had a girlfriend in high school who was very pressuring in regards to sex. Not that I didn't want it, but I was raised in a strict Christian household and premarital sex was a huge no-no and this girl wanting sex and pulling me in directions I'd never been before. I wanted to go along with her, but the way I was raised, it was like a war in my head. Is it wrong? Is it okay? Anyway, she was a cutter from before I knew her. At some point in our relationship, when I was still apprehensive about sex, she would cut herself and tell me about it afterwards, saying that I made her do it. If anybody ever says that to you in a relationship, fucking run. Uh, I made her that depressed, uh, she said. 
I didn't know whether to talk to her parents or my parents or a professional of some kind, a teacher. I didn't know how to handle it. I wanted to leave her because I thought it was crazy that she would cut herself and blame me, but I thought that if I left her, she would harm herself more seriously. So I stayed with her despite continuing to feel like shit. Looking back, I know that it wasn't my fault, but sometimes I still feel guilty. I wish her parents or our teachers had been more aware of her depression so that she could have received help back then. I don't know what she's up to these days, but I know that my relationship with her greatly affected all my relationships with girls after her, like uh, uh, like she couldn't get out of my head. I was afraid to do anything for myself, fearing that I would drive some girl to hurt herself. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Years after I spoke with her, nothing deep, just vague pleasantries. Uh, I had a lot I wanted to say, but it was really just, where did you go to school? What job do you have? How's your family? I still sometimes think about her sexually because she was the first girl I ever had an experience with, and I remember she could turn me on like no other. Not sure if that was just me being a teenage boy or what, but sometimes I still think about it. And because of this, I try to avoid talking to her or finding her on any social media or whatever, even though sometimes my mind says to seek her out and see if we can rekindle something, even though I know that would be a terrible decision. Darkest thoughts. I've thought about suicide before. I've attempted it once. I was hospitalized and spent some time in a psychiatric hospital for it. I'm now on antidepressants and medicine for my anxiety as well. I see a therapist and I'm involved in my local church. I'm not suicidal currently, but over the years, suicidal thoughts pop up. My other darkest thought is I think about cheating on my wife and leaving her. There's not a specific woman I think about cheating with, but it's something I'm very ashamed of and can't seem to shake. Darkest Secrets I have cheated on my wife several times via cyber sex and phone sex, different people. I've also exchanged numbers with quite a few women and sexted with them. Nothing that ever lasts, usually just one-time things. I've stolen money from my church multiple times. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Cheating on my wife with another married woman is my biggest fantasy. Having a beautiful woman give me a hand job or blow job in a public place is another recurring one. It makes me feel dirty and like I'm a terrible person to think those things. Physiologically speaking, it makes me feel great. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace of mind. More than anything, just the ability to not worry or be depressed for f more than five minutes would be lovely. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of these things with my therapists, some with my wife, but not all of the things I've listed. The biggest reason for not sharing is fear. Fear that my wife would leave me. Fear that my therapist would think of me as a shitty person. The things I've chosen to share usually goes okay. Sometimes they're, they're tears, but they've been very freeing conversations when I'm able to open up. Something that sticks with me forever. I really encourage you to share all of this with your therapist because any good therapist is not going to judge you but is going to take their expertise and their compassion and find tools to help you deal with your feelings so that you don't act out, so you can break the patterns. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, don't give up. No matter how hopeless you may feel or the situation may seem, don't give up. You are worth it despite what your mind may tell you. Amen. Amen. And thank you for that, Zach. 
I really appreciate that. Uh, this is a love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Pickle Juice and Funk. And he writes, I love that moment when, you, when I feel an interconnectivity with a p- potential mate. That moment when you, quote, get each other and you begin to picture yourself with them 5, 10, or even 20 years from the present. But in my case, this is almost always followed by a terrific fumble and I find myself back to single and searching after a two-week honeymoon phase. I've experienced this about 200 times in the last decade. I'm now pretty convinced I'll never find the one at this point in my life. I want to recommend a book if you're listening. Uh, It's called uh, Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And I'm not saying that that last survey, that he's definitely a love addict, but that's one of the hallmarks of love addiction, and it certainly couldn't hurt to, to read that. Uh, this is a love filled out by Paula, and I love it. Just one word, napping. I I could expound on the beauty and the joys of napping. I could write a book, I think, on napping. I think one of my favorite parts of taking a nap is when Gracie, my dog, senses that I'm going to take a nap, and she goes galloping past me and jumps on the bed and is just there waiting to curl up, steal some of the pillow, and uh, and have me rub her, her belly. I love it. I just love it. Thank you for that. This is an email that I got from a woman who wants to be referred to as M. And she writes, uh, Hi, Paul, I just listened to the episode you did uh, in October. Uh, this, this email's a, a bit old, probably about a year old. Um, on the show, I Survivor, about covert incest. I Survivor is a podcast that I was a guest on. I'd never heard the term before, and when you started explaining what covert incest was, I almost started crying. Everything that was mentioned about typical experiences for people who suffered through this sort of abuse, as well as common behavior and traits for abusers, perfectly describes my own experiences and how my mother treated me. Knowing that there's actually a term for what happened makes it feel real. I always knew something was wrong, but continued minimizing things because I guess I thought if it couldn't be defined with a word or phrase validated by other people, it didn't exist. I wish what happened to me wasn't real, but now that I know what it is, I feel empowered and I can put ownership on it. Um, And then she elaborates uh, on it. She writes, um, Uh, I'll try to stick to basic things, and I apologize if I get off track or get too graphic. Um, I figure I should warn you ahead of time that there's some uncomfortable stuff in there. Um, I'm the second oldest of four, and I always remembered my mom doing her best to keep the two of us close. She focused a lot of attention on me, which I always resented. My older sister hated me because of my closeness and apparent specialness to mom, and will still barely talk to me even today. She made my life hell growing up, which was really painful because all I wanted was to be her sister, but instead I felt like I was being attacked from all sides. I wish I could make her understand that just because my mom chose me instead of her, it doesn't change the people who we are or who we're supposed to be. My mom did what she did so she could feel powerful because she was afraid she wasn't anything. 
She loved to hurt people. Her face would change whenever she knew she'd really hit someone at their core. And I remember from an early age being completely frozen the instant she looked at me that way. I always got the feeling that it wasn't her. There was someone else there and the mask was gone. On a regular basis, she was physically violent and verbally abusive towards me. She would abuse my siblings sometimes as well, but it was usually me. After every beating, she'd start crying and race up to her room where I'd sit and rub her back while she made me tell her she was a good mom. Oh, that's so fucked up. After a while, I started mentally checking out whenever she got physically violent, so I guess it stopped being as satisfying to her. That's when she started trying to get me to me in other ways. I was forbidden from shutting my bedroom door, even if I was changing. I was allowed to close the bathroom door, but never to lock it. If she caught me locking the bathroom or shutting my bedroom door, I got punished. She claimed it was so that she could get to me in case of an emergency. For instance, a fire or an intruder. Boy, if you listen to the interview, I don't think there is any doubt that that your mom has a... uh, narcissistic personality disorder um, or, you know, something that overlaps with it. She would call me into her room while she was naked or barely clothed or barge into mine while I was changing, usually crouched in a corner to get some semblance of privacy, and then laugh when I got uncomfortable. I started changing in my closet and learned how to do it as quietly as possible so she couldn't interrupt me. She would buy me clothes and insist I let her watch me change into them. She would grab at my genitals and chest at random moments and even in front of strangers, friends, and family and then mock me for being a prude when I tried to get away. She would tell me repeatedly that her, as her daughter, I was her property and she could do whatever she wanted to me. After puberty, starting literally right after my first period, she would make fun of my breasts being small and call me fat, even though I was always between a size zero and two, because I would starve myself trying to stay thin enough for her. Every day, she'd call me fat and disgusting and then became furious when I refused to eat. She would tell me in detail about sex with my father and other men and then tell me that if I ever had to sex with had sex with a man I wasn't married to, he would steal a small part of my soul each time. God. Once, when she was changing my newborn brother's diaper, I asked why he looked different from me, and she started laughing and told me that he had a penis and not to worry. I'd find one to play with when I was older. One of my worst moments with her was when she took me to a doctor for a breast exam. I had just gone through puberty, and she claimed she wanted to have a doctor show me how to check for lumps. Her mother, who has since passed away, had been battling cancer for years, and my mom said, because of that, I had to learn to check myself. I sat on the exam table with my shirt and training bra off, feeling sick as my mom stood and stared at me without blinking. The doctor walked in, and I felt anxiety hit me like a brick wall. It was a man. I couldn't believe it. With everything my mom had drilled into my brain about staying away from men and keeping pure, it didn't make any sense. But she stood there silently while he touched me, and I stared off into the distance until he was done. I don't even remember if he wore gloves. I want to believe he did, but I don't think he was. That's the thing that scares me most, not remembering. There are large chunks of my childhood that I should have been old enough to remember, but just don't. I'm afraid of what's missing, but I also want to know because I feel like I have a right to it. I feel like most of the time I walk around empty because other people took me apart and are still holding on to the pieces. 
My family betrayed me because they all saw what was going on but refused to do anything and then put the blame on me and shamed me for cutting my mom out of my life. My dad still tries to get me to talk to her and see her like nothing's wrong. The last time I saw her, she was at the funeral for a childhood friend of my brother's. She came up to me and asked if she could hug me. I told her she could if she wanted. She put her arms around me, and finally, when she realized I wasn't going to hug her back, she let go and walked away. I could feel the eyes of people around me judging me for not hugging my own mother at a funeral for a kid whose parents would do anything to have him back. I wanted to look right back at them and announce the truth so they could see through her, because how dare she? But I couldn't. Whatever the truth is, she dictates the narrative. It's so frustrating, and I feel like my whole life has been dominated and controlled by her. I'm not happy with where I am in life, and I made a lot of big decisions so I could get out from under her control, but now still feel trapped because it's not what I want for myself. So it feels like ultimately she's been calling the shots the whole time, and I'm being punished for not keeping her in my life. I feel like I'm living a lie, but I have to keep pushing forward because I have no family I can use as a safety net. I don't know what the right decision is anymore. I used to wonder what it would feel like when my real life started and things were really under my control, but now it's starting to seem like that's never going to happen. Quote, real life has been going on this whole time and it's just going to continue this way. And that, I think, thank you so much for going deep with that, so deep. Um, And that's for me where support groups, because I very much relate to what you experienced. It's it's eerily similar to, to my own experience, obviously, because, you know, that's why you wrote me. Um, and I just want to share that I don't believe I could have progressed without intensive therapy and intensive work in support groups and some trauma-based therapy, um, somatic experiencing, EMDR, uh, and lots of unconditional love in support groups and sh- crying lots of crying lots of sadness lots of grief lots of anger but getting that stuff out because otherwise it was going to control me the rest of my life uh this is a love filled out by a woman who calls herself human and she writes when my rescue dog lola is sleeping i'm filled with quiet joy i consider the horrors she went through in the puppy mill and i'm so grateful she's not there any longer she's with me and she's safe sleeping soundly. I get to make that happen. I love that. I love that too. And then any comments to make the podcast better? She writes, I love what you do, Paul. I've been a clinical psychologist for eons. And if I could bestow an honorary doctorate upon you, I would. Thank you for making such a difference in people's lives. You are truly appreciated. That blew me away. And my God, that is the ultimate compliment. And I have to say, if you did do that and you bestowed an honorary doctorate on me. Not only would I begin introducing myself as Dr. Paul Gilmartin to people, but at the ceremony, um, I think I would have to dress up as a MD and then pretend that I didn't understand the difference. Maybe even have a scalpel there. And then when they tell me that it's for a doctorate, in psychology, uh, I would throw a fit and turn over the podium and storm off. Because people would talk about that for years. And ultimately, isn't that what it's about? 
making an impression. And finally, this is a love filled out by a woman who calls herself, this probably isn't what you're looking for. And she writes, I love my big purple veiny vibrator. His name is Bob and he's multi-speed. Can I get a hallelujah for multiple orgasms all at once? I think my record is seven. I love my husband too, but Bob is great for when he's at work. My mother, a very sheltered Mormon woman, did not react in the way I thought she would when I casually mentioned I had a vibrator named Bob. Instead of turning purple herself, she started singing Bob the Vibrator to the tune of Bob the Builder, which I imagine must must be a, a Mormon song. I think you should get your mom a vibrator. Although as a devout Mormon, would she only get it one night a week and then the rest of the time she'd have to share it with other Mormon women? That's right. I want to end the podcast on an insulting joke towards an entire religion. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. I got so much out of that interview with Dr. DeVosala. Me as Dr. Paul Gilmartin got a lot out of the interview with my fellow uh, doctor, Dr. DeVosala. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never, never forget that you're not alone. It may feel like it, but you are not. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.